Welcome back to Trojan Talk. It has been a while. We had a little bit of a respite, a break after the end of that grueling regular season, but I am back. I, Ryan Young, am back. My co-host, Max Brown, is back. The team is back together. The band is back together. We have a fun podcast planned for today, but as you all know, I got to make sure you have a way to sign up and get benefit and discount and and perks and everything. So I'm going to hit the promo at the top here. Our newest promo. This is our holiday promo. It goes probably through the end of December, so not too long. Take advantage of it. My favorite promos that we do are the ones where you save money and get free stuff, and that's what this is. So right now, you can get 25% off your annual subscription and a $75 digital gift code to use at Nike.com or in any retail stores in the United States and Puerto Rico, if you happen to be down there. It's good there, too. <laughs> get get 75 bucks of free Nike stuff and a discounted subscription. Give in now. Enjoy the lead-up to early signing day, which is this coming Wednesday, the 18th. Uh, obviously, there's still National Signing Day in February. There's the recruiting all-star events that I'll be going to in San Antonio, Texas, and Honolulu, Hawaii. I know, tough job, tough job. I manage Bowl practice, bowl game coverage, everything. Get in now. Join the discussion on Trojan Talk. It's always a fun conversation, as it usually is when I have this guy in the house. Max Brown, the former USC quarterback, the Trojans analyst, and our Trojansports.com analyst this season. And we're carrying over into the postseason. Max, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. It's been a minute. We got used to talking to each other like two times a week and then went uh, went cold, but... A lot to talk about today, so yeah, this will be this will be dope. Yeah, so let me just give the listeners a rundown of what to expect, and then we'll dive into it. Obviously, we haven't had a podcast since the end of the season, so we're going to give you our take on the state of affairs with USC football, the polarizing, if it's even polarizing, maybe it's just controversial, decision that was made to retain Clay Helton for this coming season. We'll get into all that. Then Max and I are going to give our postseason awards. We have a bunch of fun categories. I'm sure it'll spur some debate. We'll probably disagree on a lot of them, which is good. I know the fans have some thoughts on the fact that USC is not using all of its a lot of bowl practices. I have some thoughts on that too. I'm sure Max does as well because he's actually gone through bowl practices. We'll get into that. And then I'll touch on recruiting at the very end. It's very topical this week. But I don't want to waste any more time. Max, I haven't even talked to you about Mike Bone's decision or USC's decision to bring back Clay Helton after it was an 11-day 11 11-day 11 wait from the last game and then four days from the time when they knew that Utah had clinched the Pac-12 South. That's how long it took to reach this decision. I'm going to get into that timing, but first, what was your reaction when that news came down as it was kind of unfolding and playing out that week? Just overall reaction. Yeah, I was extremely surprised. Like we had basically, we had, I mean, Ryan, me and you, we had talked about it basically the whole second half of the year that it was almost a yeah. foregone conclusion that it was just a matter of time and this was kind of a formality. Yeah, when you step back, I mean, just uh, like shock. I, I thought there was no way um, that, that, that they would retain him. I thought it was a new, new AD, new boss, new president of the school. I mean, everything was pointing towards, all right, we're going to get a new uh, coach. But uh, obviously it didn't happen. And you talk about, hey, we haven't talked in three weeks or whatever it is. You asked me three weeks ago, I would have said, hey, any day now, any day now they're going to make a coaching change. And so I think I'll start it there. High level, I was uh, I was extremely shocked. What about you? Yeah, so it came down on a Wednesday. And I would say until about that Tuesday, 
afternoon, I still felt they were going to make a change. And then the buzz started coming out that everyone was expecting him to stay. I was talking to players' families, and that was becoming their expectation. That's usually a good pulse. They hadn't been told anything yet at that point, but I, I, it was starting to trickle out, trickle down. That's the way things were leaning. And so when the news came Wednesday, I, I had kind of got myself ready for that news. I wasn't surprised on the day, but as the week progressed, very surprised for a number of reasons. I, I just want to dive into the timing, okay? I'm not a conspiracy theorist by nature. I, I really kind of shy away from that. I just don't like delving into those waters. But I think there's things we don't know about this process, and we may never know. There's no obvious way to explain why it takes 11 days from the UCLA game and four days from the time that USC knows it's not playing in the conference championship game to make the decision to keep the coach you already have. I know Mike Bones knew. He came in for the final three games of the season. It's not a long evaluation period. But there was nothing more to learn about Clay Helton from that Saturday night to the Wednesday when they announced it. Those four days. There's nothing. There's no way to explain that to me. There's nothing to learn. And I thought it was telling when I actually, when I asked Mike Bones, I, myself and two others got an interview with him right after the news came out. And I, I really, that, that was my most curious point was that, was the timeline and the process. And, I, and he had already said that no other coaches were, were considered or interviewed. So I said, well, if, if no other coaches were considered, if you, weren't, if you weren't talking to other candidates, what explains that delay in decision? And he said, it's really irrelevant associated with, with revealing that. And Interesting. That's, that's one of many eye raisers to me because there's different ways you can answer that. He could have said, well, I, I, was, I had uh, many discussions with Clay about you know, what kind of support he needs for this program to, to get to the next level. And we were talking about you know, the things he feels are, are, are missing that he, he doesn't have yet. That could have been an answer. It could have been, I just wanted to interview everyone in the program and really get a sense for things after the you know season was officially over, regular season. That could have been an answer. And he didn't have one. He said it's irrelevant, which means he didn't want to talk about it. And why would he want to talk about it? To me, there's two scenarios that make sense. And this is not, I'm not reporting this. I don't know this. Like I said, we may never know what played out. But there's two scenarios that make sense to explain at least the four-day lag from the Utah's win over Colorado to the Wednesday announcement. Either they were talking to candidates, couldn't find one that they thought was an obvious upgrade, and plan B was to stick with the status quo. Or there was an internal conflict or power struggle about, about what to do, and there were intense discussions behind the scenes, be it between Mike Bone and President Carol Foltz, be it with Board of the Trustees, Boosters, I don't know. But those are the only two scenarios that, to me, explain that four-day gap if the athletic director, Mike Bone himself, is not going to offer us an explanation as to why it took that long. Your thoughts? Yeah, yeah. I think it's the first one, if I had to put my chips somewhere. I think, I mean, there was a reason we all thought it was a foregone conclusion that it was going to happen, just because of the data points we've had, not only in 2019, but all the years uh, in the past. And so if I'm Mike Bone and the past... I mean, we mentioned three weeks or whatever it is since the last football game, but ever since he got the job, so a couple months, he's probably been reaching out to coaches. And I think at large, the potential coaching market is not extremely hot in 2019. There isn't a huge name out there that is chomping at the bit to get an upgrade. And I know as I say that, people might say, oh, what about Urban? What about Urban? 
that was always kind of that was always kind of hot or cold to me. It was either he was in and it was a great option, or and this is kind of obviously what happened is do we even know if he wants to coach? And so that name was tossed out there that much, but I don't know if it ever really truly had legs. But outside of Urban, there really there really wasn't a name out there that got you pumped or an up and coming guy that was kind of next up. And the example I always use in kind of the reports I do is a few years back when, when uh, Texas hired Tom Herman, he was kind of that next big name. It was like, it was yeah. a foregone conclusion that, okay, whether it was LSU, whether it was Texas, whether it was Texas A&M, Tom Herman was going to be that guy to get that next level, next bump up. There wasn't a name like that this year. So if you're Mike Bone and you're reaching out there and some names in, in particular, but if a Mike Norvell doesn't excite you uh, as much uh, coming from Memphis, if, uh, either Matt Rule or, or Matt Campbell, who both got contracts extensions. I know Matt Rule; he's been on on uh, he's been quoted saying he loves Baylor. He, he's been jumping around a lot in his career as of late, and he was kind of like, "Hey, I want to reap the rewards of what I've built at Baylor," kind of thing. If that's his mindset, and he doesn't happen, he doesn't happen. Okay, I mean all those other names. I mean, like Luke Fickle was thrown out there. Who knows about that? But I guess point being is, if you reach out and the coaching market's not incredibly hot, then you're saying, "Hey." We, we had a disappointing year in terms of USC standards, but there is still some positive momentum with this team. Let's keep this, this, the Clay Helton regime rolling. And I think the next point I would add is that, so if that's, if that's 1A, the 1B is if I'm Mike Bone and I know, hey, I've started off hot. I got a good, the, the fan base has responded well to me up until the, uh, the, the decision. I know that a large part of my USC career or the, hugest chunk of my entire USC tenor is who I'm going to hire as my football coach. And so if he's saying, hey, uh, I'm not pumped on any name right now in 2019, let's give it another year, which I know is very potentially problematic for USC fans. But if I give it another year, can I get another shot in 2020 and a clearer shot in 2020? Because I'll have the job longer and maybe another name will pop up then. And on the flip side, Yes, he's retaining Clay Helton, but I think to the core, at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, I don't know if his career, if he'll re, he'll be remembered as the guy, like the Clay Helton guy. I think in a large part, that's always going to be Pat Hayden and Lynn Swan. I don't know if Mike Bone, even though he had kept him on, I don't know if his legacy, USC legacy, will be defined by that. And I say all that to say in 2020, if things don't go as well, he could have another crack at this to get another coach that he loves that may not have been there right here, right now. I think you make some great points, and I want to go over a few of them. I love your point about the coaching market. Yeah, there, there was no Tom Herman or P.J. Fleck You know, looking to make that jump. He's already made that jump. Mike Norvell was that name. Florida State hires him. I'm with you. I, like That would not have moved the needle majorly for me. Maybe yep. he turns out to be a great coach, but it wasn't unanimous where every program in the country was, was battling for Mike Norvell. So that's a great point, and I think that very well could be part of this. I'm going to go back to another point. I think the, obviously the main reason why Clay Helton was retained after last season, after 5-7, and seven, was because of his contract. Because Lynn Swan had just given him an extension the previous year. He, at that point, had five more years on his contract, and I, Lynn Swan didn't want to admit a mistake immediately and have the university absorb all that money. I think he was kind of trapped in the, in the keeping him. This year, Clay still has four years left on his contract. It runs through 2023. I, 
I asked Mike Bone in that interview on the day of, I said, how much of a factor was money? And he was adamant that it was no factor. He said, irrelevant was never a factor, never. You're asking the juicy questions. I like this. This is good I, stuff. You, know, <laughs> you, you got to. I also respect the position he's in, though, that there's not much he can say there. He can't come out and say, well, yeah, that's clearly the reason we made this decision. <laughs> he can't say that. Yeah. And, and when I ask him, did you talk to other coaches in the meanwhile, he can't say, well, yeah, of course. I interviewed four guys and it didn't work out. He can't say that. So it's not – that he's being misleading, he's doing his job as an athletic director. So I can, I can still think that maybe those aren't the actual answers, but the the only answers he can give. And so a scenario that just keeps coming into my head is maybe at one point they, they thought they were going to make a change, and then USC wins five out of six. And I know to fans that beating Arizona State and Cal and UCLA don't change anything in terms of their perception of where this program's heading. I get that. Don't shoot the messenger. My point is that the season ends, Mike Bone, Carol Foltz, whoever's in, in, involved in this, someone goes, well, wait, like the team seems to be playing for this guy still. It's not dire. It's not like it was with Willie Taggart at Florida State or with Chad Morris at Arkansas where it was untenable. Do we really have to eat all this money right now when they just won five of their last six games and they're ranked number 22? Is this is this really like essential that we eat all this money? I would be shocked if that didn't come into the discussion. And maybe that was Carol Fult putting her foot down and going, I don't, I'm running a university here. I don't think it's prudent for USC as a university and its constituents to be taking on this massive pay out the change of football coach who just won five of his last six games. I, yeah. I have yeah, to think no. that, 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 that stuff came into play somehow. No, I'm with you. And that's the camp I was in right when I heard the contract news in terms of, hey, Clay's buyout is $20 million or whatever the number was. But then I also, just to kind of go on the other side, I do step back and I'm saying, well, wait a sec. We have this new stadium renovation and we had various USC families pay whatever the, the asking price was, $10 million for a box. I'd like to think there are, is some donor out there that would front the bill. I, I don't know how exactly that works. I mean, I, I don't know the specifics. I know that's a very high-level uh, thing or thing to say. But to me, I just think if it came down to the money, I'd like to think there was a booster. But then to your point, maybe Carol Fold doesn't want to go down that road of having boosters kind of be at the heart of – coaching decisions and, and moving the needle with the university. So I'm with you. I, I think definitely the contract certainly played a, played a factor. I think, uh, I mean, on the flip side, if money was no factor, and let's just say uh, he had a $0 buyout, I think, I mean, you, if you're, the, if you're the, the, the leadership, you probably go a different direction just to maybe spark some energy. And then the, the flip side of this whole money thing is by retaining Clay, how does that affect kind of Ticket sales exactly. next year and excitement around exactly. the program versus if you brought in a new guy, there definitely would be some intrigue and, and some uh, some excitement. I don't care who you are, just because of the fact it's new. So I think there's two sides to that money question. I am intrigued with the status of the athletic program. Whether hey, we're 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 boosters ever even involved, ever even talked to, because uh, if we're just calling a spade a spade, that's that's one luxury that USC has being a private school and being able to access some of that money. I feel like that's something that could have been done, but obviously uh, didn't happen. Well, listen, the the economics of college football have proven out time and again that when you're in this situation, you make the decision to eat the money. If you're going to make a change at some point, you make the change now, you eat the money, and you hope that you recoup it 
in increased fan interest and revenue, or at least avoid losing more money in decreased fan interest and revenue, which is the predicament USC is in. We won't know until we get in the Coliseum next season what the fan reaction is going to be. Maybe we'll get a gauge for it in this bowl game, the Holiday Bowl, because it's obviously a short drive for USC fans. There's no reason not to be there if you're invested in the program. If they come out with a flat attendance, that's telling. But the response, obviously, on social media and on any platform on message boards like ours is pretty near unanimous that fans are displeased that they're talking about not buying tickets, not giving money to the athletic department anymore. So if that's the actual equation, you're losing money one way or the other. You make the move. I just wonder if Carol Folt considered the optics and said, I want to run an efficient, well-managed university. Do I want one of my first moves to be absorbing this massive cost, even if it's going to be paid by boosters, when we're not like scraping the bottom of the barrel with the program. I think she probably just has a different perspective than fans. And again, this is all just me spouting logic and drawing my own conclusions. I'm not reporting any of this. I do not know what Carol Folt's role, if any, was in this. Obviously, there was some. I just don't know. But here's what I know. If you have decided that you're going to keep your head coach, you don't wait 11 days after the end of the season or four days after the fate of the season is known. You just don't because that gives the impression of uncertainty that you are not fully convicted in this decision, that you are wavering. It, in an indirect way, undermines Clay Helton even when you keep him after that delay because you clearly weren't sure enough to just say, this is our guy. So there's something else at play there. Uh, you'll never convince yeah. me otherwise. That's just the only way I, 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 I can perceive it. Yeah, I'm with you. And I'm still sitting here. I mean, the money deal is interesting because if, if the price tag was $20 million, uh, I think the other factor, too, is what kind of contract would the new coach ask for exactly. the guy, the guy exactly. you went down. But I just look at it, and I think, I mean, if we're being honest, I'm, I'm reading those same reports you are in terms of uh, fans pulling money from their, their donations and not buying tickets and all that. And the fan base doesn't seem to be in uh, – I mean, I'm not I'm – not, uh, breaking any news here we all know this but the fan base is not happy and i think it, it come 2020 it'll be very telling how, how much money the athletic program loses as a result of this it, it, that part is intriguing to me like you said uh, the the timing that's a huge red flag and it's one of those two scenarios that you indicated but an interesting time yeah i think at the end of the day it's impressive that the sc finished the way they did that's the bright spot but it's a little bit choppy waters right now to uh, to say the least I want to close on one more point on this that I need to get in here. I just, throughout this whole process, the reason why I was so convinced that a change was coming was because I think Mike Bone's a savvy guy. I think after being here at least a few weeks, he got a sense for what the pulse of the fan base was. And I can't imagine that he would have wanted to take this job to have his first move be in opposition to the overwhelming majority of the fan base because now in ter- for many USC fans fair or not Clay Helton's <clears throat> villain number one and Mike Bones number two uh, the the honeymoon ended very quickly and ultimately you know this has to play out we'll see what happens like you said uh, this could have been strategic and the move could be a year from now if things are still in that 
middling level for the program. Uh, so his legacy is not defined right now, but for many fans it is, and he's going to have to battle through that. And he he's at least seems aware of that because he, he he acknowledged in his interviews that we need you all to support us. I know it could it may take time, but we need you as a part of this. Like he was almost like a plea to the fans. Like I know you're upset. I know how you feel, but just this is going to work. We need you. And so I just can't imagine he came into this job. He went through his interviews with Carol Folt and the board or whatever and didn't discuss what are we going to do with the football program. I need to know coming in what the move is. Do I have autonomy? Do I have authority to do this? I just have to imagine he didn't come in here to keep the status quo in the face of a revolting fan base. And that's another reason why I just think that something must have changed along the way in the process and it wasn't beating Cal and it wasn't beating UCLA. Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm with you. And I think, uh, yeah, we hashed the point uh, pretty well. Yeah, no, I'm right with yeah. you. Well, so, so just to spin it forward, what we don't know yet, and in his announcement, in his tweet that he announced the news and also in our interview, he hinted that there's going to be more support given to the program in terms of resources. And we don't know what, what that is yet. Uh, I, I requested a follow-up interview with Mike Bone a few days later, and I was told he wasn't ready to discuss that yet. But the one area where you'd hope it will impact is recruiting staff. When former recruiting coordinator Eric Ziskin left last spring, I had a nice interview with him and I finally Great got dude. to kind of, yeah, he is. And I finally got to ask him where, in a position where he could actually answer, like, give me a sense for how understaffed USC's recruiting staff actually is. Like, I, I don't know. Like he basically said that pretty much all the teams that we compete with for recruits have about twice the size the recruiting staff they have, they have twice as many people and that can be people who are you know actively calling and making connections and stuff it can, can be graphic designers which is a huge part of today's recruiting usc is just woefully understaffed there and those guys in the office work their tails off they work hard they are at a disadvantage because they don't have the help that other schools have they're doing the jobs of multiple people and that's why uh we've seen in the last year and Alex Rios and Eric Ziskin leave like it's they were burned out to a degree and so you would hope that Mike Bone's statement means we're gonna bring this up to date with the current landscape of college football and have more recruiting staff um the, the LA Times reported that Graham Harrell was offered a raise as he was drawing interest from Texas uh for the OC job UNLV for the head coaching job at one point if they're going to pony up more money for staffing, that's the way to support Clay Helton. So that's what I want to see moving forward is what do those words mean that he that he issued that day? Yeah, and I think Graham to me is that, that that's the big one. Obviously, he's young guy, up and coming guy. He's in that uh, very trendy air raid tree. So you better believe he's going to attract some interest. And the recruiting one's interesting. Uh, I actually know uh eric ziskin i saw him what was it uh a few months back in the summer talked to him i know at hawks rios very well and uh their assistant uh randomly i just uh talked to she's trying to get it she left uh as well after uh her grad school and is trying to get a job i only mentioned that just because yeah I, i'm well i'm familiar with that recruiting staff i think gavin who's become uh popular in in the recruiting world kind of southern california gavin morris, yep yeah gavin morris uh in southern california with those ties he's incredible he's super locked in he loves his job he's great but to your point i mean when you have double the bodies elsewhere that's that that's that's tough sledding and 
uh, just to kind of rehash what you said, what would those extra bodies do? It is graphic designers. It is just sheer creating uh, graphics and sending those out to recruits and being front of mind for these kids, especially these kids that are not from Southern California, a simple letter, you better believe when I was 14, 15, 16, those letters were, those made my week. I mean, I, I'll, to this day, I remember my first letter from UCLA and it was just like a graphic with that said like, go Bruins or whatever. But like that matters, especially for these kids that are having something uh, change their life. So that that's uh, where it goes. And I also think there's the evaluation period. So I know a guy like Eric Ziskin or a guy like Eric, uh, uh, Alex Rios, they're kind of the first layer of the onion in terms of breaking down recruits up and coming sophomores. Obviously, when guys get to become late juniors and seniors, the world kind of knows about the guys SCs after. But for those sophomores and up and coming guys, the the role of that recruiting staff is really to kind of uh, sort through all the clutter and make sure uh, SC is getting on guys that will, by the time they are a junior, by the time they're a senior, and when they are big guys, to make sure SC's not late to the party on those guys. So that staff can't be uh, underestimated. I think that's a great resource. I mean, over the years, we've seen resources uh, boosted, obviously, with facilities, with nutrition and whatnot, but staff and the people in your building, investing in those people, it goes a long way. Yeah, you have to have bodies to do, to do all that stuff, to be able to send all those others out. You have to have bodies that are doing the first lines of scouting. The coaches aren't the first lines of scouting. It's it's the recruiting staff that filters through hundreds upon thousands of tapes and, and says, hey, coach, look at this guy. That's kind of the first line of this process. And for so many kids, like you'd be surprised. I think everyone just thinks that the coaches are, are, the, are the link in recruiting. I talk to many kids. I'm like, so... Uh, what's the communication been with USC? And he'll be like, oh, yeah, I'm hearing a lot from, uh, from so-and-so. And it's not an assistant coach. It's a recruiting staffer or it's an offensive analyst. I mean, it, it really gets, it's the full operation that goes into this process. And right now they have uh, Spencer Harris, Trey Johnson, Gavin Morris, Kelsey Winkle doing the heavy lifting. They could use four more of those people to help them out. So I'll be curious to see if that comes to fruition. I'll be curious to see if there's more money for the assistant coaching pool. Obviously, there's been no staff changes yet. We asked Mike Bone about that uh, last week when the news came out. He said uh, nothing's off the table or everything's on the table, but we're not ready to talk about that. Everyone obviously is going to wait and see if they replace Clancy Pendergast as defensive coordinator, John Baxter as special teams coach. Those are the two names that everyone's focused on. I don't. Again, the timing is interesting to me because most programs that are going to change coordinators have already done so. Texas got rid of both of theirs. Notre Dame got rid of one. Um, there's been other schools that have made that change already because you want to act while the market is hot and available. You, you, you're not going to be able to hire somebody who just got hired somewhere else three weeks earlier. So if they if they yeah. are planning to make changes there, I think again they've maybe hamstrung themselves a little bit by not acting immediately like most programs do. So maybe there's no changes coming to the staff. I know that will drive fans into a, a further tithy. Uh, we'll see what happens in the coming weeks after the bowl game here. But th- those are kind of the storylines the monitor moving forward. And just one more point as we look forward. Bear in mind, everyone who's like supremely frustrated by keeping the status quo and where things are at, the on-field product to me is not the biggest concern next year. They are going to be stocked with talent. This could be a very good team with Clay Helton and whatever staff he has, because as long as Graham Harrell's a part of that, because the pieces are in place. The offense loses Michael Pittman and Drew Richmond, for sure. 
There's decisions to be made by left tackle Austin Jackson, left guard Elijah Vera Tucker, wide receiver Tyler Vaughns. So we have to see where that all shakes out. Either way, you're bringing back a bulk of talent, bringing back a star young quarterback who, I'm just going to say it because there's no reason to put limitations on him, could well be one of the best quarterbacks in the country in the coming years. He's, he's shown yep. enough that we can say that. You bring back a deep running back core that could potentially return your top four rushers, depending on whether anyone transfers out. You bring back still a very deep receiver core, even if with Pittman gone and if Vaughn's stays or goes, either way, it's a deep receiving core. The talent's there. On defense, they lose John Houston at linebacker and Christian Rector at defensive end. Jay Tufeli, Marlon Tuipilovtu have decisions to make. We'll see, but either way, you're bringing back the core of that, and everyone's getting a year older. This is going to be a good team next year. Will it be good enough to get over the eight and four, nine and three hump and be a great team? I don't know. I don't know, but it's not going to be a four and eight season next year. The talent's there. The concern for fans, obviously, is the recruiting. We'll get into that later, and what they do, what the overall tra- trajectory of the program is long term, as this down recruiting cycle uh, plays out. You know, a couple years from now, and whether the 2021 class can rebound, etc. But the immediate concern is not the on-field product in 2020, and that was probably also a lot of the reason why the decision-makers were able to come to some peace with saying, let's run it back. Yeah, and I think to me, because we're on the uh, the 2020 point, to me the, the potential concern for SC fans too is, I think this team's going to win more than eight games next year. I actually think this team's going to be double-digit wins. I think there's just so much coming back. I think there's um, just with the talent they have, there's good energy there. But is it even if SC takes the next step, will they ever take the the, the peak step to the point exactly. where they're in the conversations with the Clemson's, Alabama's, Oklahoma's that are year in, excuse me, year in and year out in in the college football playoff? Like to me, next year they could blink, go ten and two. And that's a great year, but they're gonna, those two losses, what are those? And will they ever be able to get over the hump? That, to me, you mentioned concern. I'm not really concerned with kind of the 8-4 and four or worse. I just I don't see that happening. I am concerned with uh, just bigger than 2020. Where, where, where's the program at 2022, 2024, that kind of thing, the long-term trajectory of, uh, of USC? You stated that much better than I did, and I'm glad you did. That's the point is that the fear for fans with this decision is that it's not just a one-year uh, continuation because the wins will probably be there next year. And then they're in the same place where they're facing the same decision. There's a little bit less money left on the contract at that point. Maybe that's a factor. But you're probably looking at a team that, that won eight or nine or, or maybe, like you said, ten games. And then you're not making a change then probably. But meanwhile, yes, are you ever closing the gap with the national powers? Is, is this program getting any closer to national contention? Fans simply don't believe the infrastructure is there. That, that's the point. Right now, the talent is there. The talent is there now. Will it be there in two years? USC is ranked 72nd recruiting right now. That will go up, but it's going to be a down class. If next year is also a down class, that's hard to overcome back-to-back down classes. That talent deficiency is going to start to show its head on the field before long. And that's beside the point of whether you think this coach and the staff can win the big games, can out-coach a Nick Saban as they're going to face start next season, or even just Oregon on an annual basis, Washington, Utah. You know, that's the question fans have. It's a very valid question. I get the fan sentiment. I do. I'm, I'm not here to to tell anyone not to feel the way they feel because I get it. I get it. 
it's just it's it's it was a very interesting decision with a lot of ramifications and uh, I'm sure we'll have plenty more conversations in the future about it but I thought we hit some good points there. Okay, let's get back to well that was a pretty meaty topic but I'm most looking forward to this next this next segment as we look back on the 2019 regular season and give out our awards. Now the Pac-12 has put its all-conference team. There's been uh, the National Player of the Year awards. You know Michael Pittman was a finalist for the Belichickoff. Ended up going to Jamar Chase at LSU. All that stuff's been levied, but I think the fans have been on the edge of their seat waiting for the Trojan Talk end of season awards. And we kept you waiting. We built suspense, but the moment is now. Max and I are going to run down six categories that we feel sum it up. And we'll see where we stand. We have not compared notes, so this is all fresh. This is all off the cuff. Let's start. Love it. Yeah, let's let's start in a, with the obvious ones. Let's go offensive MVP for the 2019 season. Max, who you got? Who do I got? I got uh, the true freshman, Keaton Slovis. I, I wanted to try to make an argument for Michael Pittman, but if we're just being honest, uh, Pitt had an un, unreal year. He is the leader. He is the senior guy. Loved playing with him when I was on SC. But I think uh, SC had so many great receivers. I don't know if you can give him MVP. But I think it's it's Caden Slovis. And, I mean, you just talk about what we – right now, he's one of the most exciting young quarterbacks in college football. Obviously, uh, Pac-12 uh, freshman of the year. But it's crazy just when you think back. And we've hashed, hashed on this a lot. But, I mean, JT Daniels was poised for a big year. Goes down in the first game. And right there, we were like, oh, crap. This could get This could go south quick. And for a true freshman to come in there, do what he did, and we've gone down these storylines, but uh, it wasn't that long ago back in August where Graham Harrell was kind of saying, hey, he's, he's one of the best I've seen, and we were all giving him crap for that. Well, we gotta we gotta own up to our mistake now, or uh, not maybe, or some people do that that we're get, that we're on Graham uh, on Graham for that. So I give it to Keaton. I think uh, he was so big for this team, for this offense. And he's the uh, the centerpiece of this fu- for the future of this team. That, that's the obvious answer. It has to be the answer. It's my answer. But hey, let's not paint with a broad brush here. Some of us were were less skeptical of Keaton Slovis in the spring than others. Okay, I'm on record. I'm on record. <laughs> true, true. Uh, but but no, I, I had the same thought process, process you did. I, I loved what Michael Pittman did this year, and he deserves every accolade he's he's getting. He was a first-team All-Pac-12 selection. He was a second-team Walter Camp All-American. Like I said, Belitnikov finalist. Just a driving force for this team. Maybe the biggest factor in, in a couple of the wins, the, the Utah game, obviously. Another game later in the year where he was really just, it, it was him w- willing them on. But Keaton Slovis saved this season. And when I talk about why this team can be really fun and good next year, despite what you may feel about the coaching situation, it's because of him, in large part, and just think, if they had end-of-season Keaton Slovis for the first part of the season, it's a different year for USC. They definitely yeah. don't lose to BYU. They probably beat a Washington team that proved to not be great. Maybe I shouldn't say probably. Maybe they do. But if he was playing the way he played down the stretch once he had experience, it's a different season in the first part of the year. And that's the guy they're going to have next year. They're going to have that experience, Keaton Slovis. And... Yes, JT Daniels is coming back. We had that long discussion in the previous podcast. There's just simply no way you cannot let Keaton Slovis build off what he did. But this is Keaton Slovis' team, barring anything unexpected. And he's the MVP again 3,242 yards, 28 touchdowns, nine interceptions, 
four 400 yard games in the last five weeks, a 500 yard game, which was USC's single game passing record. There's not many more talented quarterbacks in the country, and I don't think it's a stretch to think that he will be at least a dark horse Heisman candidate in the coming years if this yep. offense remains built around him. He's just too talented. Yeah. Okay. No, I'm rather, one one uh, five or twenty second uh, love up, but I think we do need to. I do want to love up on the left side of the offensive line too. You talk about Austin Jackson, Elijah Vera Tucker. They were locked in all year, and I don't think the offensive line as a whole was like elite, elite. But you just talk about where we thought this unit was going to be, or where this where this unit was in August, and there was some serious, serious concerns for that left side to stay healthy, for Elijah Vera Tucker to be Tucker to be one of the best guards not only in the conference, but probably in the country in terms of his ratings. And then Austin Jackson, he's NFL trajectory. So I think that left side was pretty locked in all year. And, uh, yeah, wanted to show him love. You may hear from them again in this award segment. We'll see. Okay, defensive MVP. This was a little tougher for me. Um, I'll start since you started last time. I it wasn't obvious to me, but then in the end, it became clear that that the best answer I think is Jay Tufeli, the big defensive tackle in the middle. He was uh, their only defensive first team All Pac-12 selection. That wasn't my criteria, but just noting that he was also their top-rated PFF defensive player among guys who played most of the season. Um, I just give it to him for the consistency. He, he was a steady force in the middle there. He wreaked a lot of havoc. The stats don't fully capture it. He ended up with six and a half tackles for loss, four and a half sacks. Had a very nice season, but he was just disruptive far more than those numbers show. And that interior of the line was was a clear strength for this defense overall. I give it to him. My runner-up in the end was Drake Jackson because if they don't have him this year, Christian Rector struggles through injury, does not have a great season statistically, they don't have a ton of depth there, as it proved out. They have some guys, Caleb Tremblay, had a nice season, but they needed him to fill in for Rector a lot. But you don't have Drake Jackson. That pass rush is severely undermined. He ends up leading the team with 11.5 tackles for loss, 5.5 sacks. So he was the, the next guy I considered there, but I give it to Tufeli. Max? Yeah, for me, I think I went at it at a different angle. I think because the D-line was such a strength and you did have bodies like a Nick Figueroa, Brandon Peely, Caleb Tremlay, Connor Murphy, those guys, it was hard for me to give uh, MVPs to one of the D-linemen. But two guys stuck out to me. I think one was Talanoa. I think I know he was injured at, at parts, but just when you turn on the tape, when he was in there and he was healthy, the difference in that defense and how they were flying around and the impact he made was crucial. I think you also touched on that Washington game. That missed tackle that if Talano was playing in the alleyway against uh, – or yep. in the alley in the hole against Savon Ahmed, if that tackle's made and it's not a 95-yard TD run, the story of this season, I mean, who knows? The SC's offense isn't pressing as much. Maybe you be, uh, you, you keep Washington to, uh, to, to punt in the back of their end zone and something happens. Who knows? That one play kind of sticks out to me. But then my runner-up, and I know fans are going to roll over when they uh, when they hear this, but I know uh, it's coming. Is John Houston, and I think it's not because he's as skilled as a Cam Smith or some of these great linebackers that SC's had. But think about it: if you don't have John Houston and EA goes down, you're counting on some young young players playing vital roles, especially in the middle of that season. And I know at times John. Uh, 
was slow to start, I think, uh, in those earlier games. You look at the back half of that season when SC got rolling, he was the, at the center of it. I thought his skill set was more conducive to some of the later games. But I just think in terms of most valuable player, if you don't have him, you're putting young guys in there. John Houston and Cl- uh, Clancy said it in every interview, he's getting guys lined up. He's communicating. He's the leader. He's the senior guy. And once again, I'm not saying he's an all-world NFL-style USC linebacker. But I am saying that he filled a huge role in terms of if you don't have him, there's a big vacancy on that USC defense. I don't hate it. I, I, I think you make two great points there with, with both those guys. I think if Talanoa was healthy the whole season, I think I would have expected him to be, be my pick. I can't, I can't fault your selection, though. And uh, John Houston finishes with 100 tackles to lead the team. Obviously, I very trusted by the staff. Played by far the most snaps of anyone on that defense for what that's worth. So I will not contest your choices. <laughs> okay. Oh. We're going to move on to most improved player in 2019. I have one for both sides of the ball. I, I don't know if, if, if you do or not. We'll kick, just kind of feel it out. Kick us but. off and I'll, uh, I'll counter you. Sure. Okay, I'm going to start on the offensive side. And I'm going to go with the aforementioned Elijah Vera Tucker. A guy who got some work last year, but but wasn't a main a main cog, a main piece. I don't think anyone knew that he was going to end up being one of the the best guards in the country by PFF. He finished the regular season tied for sixth in the PFF grades on pass protection, pass blocking. That's uh, it's really impressive stuff. He was a, a consistent cog all year. You mentioned that left side of the line. Austin Jackson got the postseason honors. A first team all Pac-12. He's the guy that everyone's waiting to find out about his draft stock. I think both guys have decisions to make, but but Vera Tucker made the biggest leap of anybody to me from having a limited role last year, us not truly knowing what to expect from him this year, to becoming just a critical, critical linchpin to the offense and the offensive line. Love that, yeah. Give me your offense first, and I'll give you my defense afterward. We'll, we'll do it that way. Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, I think it's probably Elijah Vera Tucker for conversational purposes. I'll give, uh, I'll give Marquis Stepp some love, and this is perfect because this is, this is our last podcast of the year. Uh, I know early on in the year I was kind of the guy that was, I don't know, maybe uh, pushing back a little bit and loving up a, a, a Vivai Malapai yeah. or a Stephen Carr. But no, it never was. It never was because I didn't like Marquis Step. I just uh, yeah went at it from a different perspective. But you talk about the value he brought, and I think when you look forward to twenty twenty in terms of most improved, a guy that yes he had a great spring, and I think he was on the radar for for USC faithful fans. But I think at large that the weapon that he is, especially in this air raid offense, being a youngster, uh, and he's been hurt. So I think we haven't talked about him as much, but he was huge for SC, especially uh, in some of those tight games, third and short, fourth and short. And I think he'll be a huge part. We've talked about Keaton and the excitement that he brings in 2020. We've talked about the receiver group, but this running back core, and it'll be interesting to see how the carries are spread out. But uh, Marquis Step, I think I thought took a huge step in uh, pun intended in uh, 2019. <laughs> Great choice. Obviously, you know that I'm, I'm full support for that that choice. Okay, on the defensive side, I had a couple of ways I could go with this. I ultimately settled on Elijah Griffin. Ended up as USC's steadiest cornerback. It's highest graded cornerback per PFF. Um, just kind of emerged as that as that clear number one guy that position. 
as a redshirt freshman, or as a sophomore, I'm sorry. Uh, he, he played some games last year. He got a chance last season and wasn't quite ready. You know, USC had Isaiah Langley as a starting corner, and he was struggling, and they were trying different things. And, and then they gave Griffin a chance, and it, it was it was not very smooth. And then he had injuries and everything else. So for him to emerge a season later as just the stabilizing force of that position, I think I have to give the, the nod to him here as most improved defensive player. Yeah, and I agree with you. I'm, I'm, I'm totally aligned with you. And I, I uh, circle back to the same point I made about the offensive line. I mean, you just talk about where this group was in August, and there was big concern. And I think as we saw, it was probably more so the fact that USC's receiving core was so, so good that, uh, I mean, the secondary had to go up against them, and that, that's tough going up against that receiving core in this offense all the fall camp and all the spring ball. But, yeah, it was, the, the cornerbacks were a position of concern going into the year, and we walk out of the year saying this is a position of strength. This is going to be kind of the cornerstone of the defense, uh, I think, for years to come. I mean, the ceiling is sky high for this group in terms of ultimate, like, Football trajectories, ITS, uh, OG, Tal Noah, Isaiah Palomao, all those guys, I think, amongst uh, other Chris guys. Steele. Chris Steele. Yeah, yeah, seriously. I mean, Dorian Hewitt was getting in there a little bit, Max Williams. I mean, that's seven guys right there. So I think all those guys have a have a piece of excitement. But uh, OG, I think, kind of solidified himself as kind of that, that go-to corner. As I say that out loud, though, I think Chris Steele would have something to say about that. So I think just that group at large took a huge step. But uh, Elijah Griffin, from where he was in 2018 to where he is at the 2019, end of 2019, he's on the right path, and uh, he'll be huge for SC moving forward. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely going to be a competition, not a competition per se, but a, a uh, debate in, in the years to come. Is it OG? Is it Steele? Who's the best corner? Uh, I know that uh, Isaac Taylor Stewart would put himself in that conversation, and, and he may well he may well do that. But right now, I think those two guys were the best corners, and I wouldn't be surprised if if Steele ends up being the 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 stud next year, but both high high potential and then really all three guys. Okay, uh, this is a fun one. Comeback player of the year, comeback player of the year, Max. Comeback player of the year. Off. I have a feeling we might ag- agree on this, but uh, I got to give it to Chase McGrath. Um, I think, I mean, just where he was. With his knee and kind of where he was at last year, and I know uh, he, he missed a kick, kick late this year, but he was automatic the whole year. And yeah. I, I think you talk about, we mentioned John Baxter, and um, the special teams was, was flaky uh, for much of the year on, on, in certain units. The one unit that was not flaky was was uh, the kicking game. And Chase McGrath, you talk about an ACL tear for a kicker. That, that's not fun. That's that's not easy. That's that's a huge red flag to me. So for him to bounce back, especially when there was a little bit of competition there, I think, with Michael Michael Brown a little bit, for him to bounce back, take the reins, and then have a big 2019, i got to give the kicker some love. And, uh, yeah, Chase McGrath's my comeback player of the year. That was where I was initially. Uh, so uh, McGrath finishes 13 out of 15 on field goals. Unfortunately, had a miss in the last game or – Stats were even better, but a great season, like you said. I don't know that I had any expectation for him coming back off that ACL. I didn't know what to expect. Um, yeah, it's a fun, it's a great selection, and it, he was a stabilizing force in an otherwise erratic special teams unit. I eventually went away from that, though, and he was my runner-up. I went to Isaiah Polamau, and he's a comeback player in a couple ways. A, he got hurt in the second game of the season last year and was lost for the season, so he had to come back from his shoulder injury. 
and was kind of even though we penciled him in as like okay well clearly it's gonna be Hufanga and Paula Mao he really hadn't done anything yet so he was a he was an unknown and then I'm also gonna factor in his comeback from the first half of the season to the latter half of the season where he was maligned earlier this year for his tackling and I was part of that course I, I thought maybe they needed to try somebody else there Kudos to the coaching staff for sticking with him and and helping him work through that and become a, a steadier tackler. He ended the season as one of the top graded tacklers on PFF for USC. Uh, so it was, it was a major turnaround. He, yeah, here we go. Uh, he had he had the second best tackling grade on, on the team, an eighty three point one, which is very good on PFF scale. After being one of the worst the first half of the season. So he finished as the team leader in interceptions. I just thought he emerged down the stretch as the guy that we hoped or thought he would be. And so he turned it around. He had the comeback from his injury last year, and he had the comeback from the first half of the season this year. That's my choice. I love that. And uh might see him later in this selection as well. <laughs> oh, the tease is galore. Okay. Uh, yeah, you know what? We just might. We just might see him later in this conversation. Okay. The play of the year. We're going to go offense and defense here. I'll let you start. What, 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 was, your, what was your offensive play of the year for USC this season? Yeah. Uh, I went at this a, a little unique. I'm intrigued to see where you, how you went at this. But I kind of went at for the significance of the play, but also kind of what the play symbolized. And, and to me, it's – uh, play of the year is Matt Fink's first touchdown against Utah. Um, the fade ball, the perfect throw down the sideline to Tyler Vaughn's, I believe it was, on the right-hand side. And I love that play because I think right when you, uh, you texted me the prompts beforehand, a little bit beforehand, and that's the first play that came to my mind in terms of, I mean, it shows kind of what this what this year symbolizes. One, it was against Utah, which is SC's best win of the year, a uh, Utah team that had, like, they fell up short of their ultimate goal but had an incredible year. And I think, too, you talk about the revolving door at quarterback is going to always be something that I uh, that I remember about this 2019 team. And for the fact that Matt Fink's able to come off off the bench, third-string quarterback, it wasn't that far removed from him losing the job and there being some tough feelings there. And for him not to flinch at all, go like three throws down the field and then a deep ball touchdown uh, against Utah was flat-out impressive. And I think that game something that always stick out to me. I thought that game was crucial when you talk about Clay Helton's trajectory of kind of, okay, so Clay Helton was ultimately kept on with an 8-4 and four record. If you don't have Matt Fink there against Utah, a third-string quarterback, which most teams don't have in the country, that loss could have happened. The whole mold of the of the of the season. I mean, we talk about how the players were buying in after that three and three start. Well, what happens if it's like a two and four start? And I think Matt Fink has a huge uh, huge role in that. So that one throw, uh, I have a defensive one as well. But the, the that one throw offensively, I think just kind of the symbolism of it, Utah, of it Matt Fink, of it being a quarterback, of it being a product of this air raid and the no flinch mentality, and we're just going to plug guys in and play. I think all those things wrapped into that one throw, that one. Play. Play sticks out to me. Dad Gummit, I think you may have a more compelling case than I do <laughs> for mine. That's I, I did not think of that, and that's a great point. In terms of scope of the season, pivotal moments, it's hard to argue with that. I think that because the Washington game went so oppositely, some have forgotten how clutch and crucial think was in that Utah game, the biggest win of the season. That's a great answer. It wasn't my answer. I'll stick with mine, but just for the sake of argument, but that's a great answer. 
And I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna frame it in the same way you did. When I look back on the season, I'm gonna remember this as the season of Keaton Slovis. And when I think of Keaton Slovis' season, which was full of highlights and, and great plays, I'll always come back first to the 95-yard touchdown to Amon Ross St. Brown against Arizona State on just I thought a about next that one. Throw. That, that, that's a good one. Yep, I thought about good, that one. Good. I'm I'm not totally off base here. Um, just a, a next level throw, sees it quickly, identifies it. St. Brown has a step, maybe a step and a half, with a triumvirate of defenders kind of flanking him from behind. That throw is a missile on a line, very little arc under it, right where it needs to be. Hit, hits Not only gets over and through the defenders, hits St. Brown in stride so he can catch it and keep going for the 95-yard touchdown. And when people say, beyond the stats, why is Keaton Slow special, I'm going to queue up that highlight and go because he, he can do this. This throw. That's my answer, but I love your answer too. Love that. Yeah, no, I mean, that shows how he's, uh, how he's progressed uh, as a true freshman quarterback. And for him to be playing at such an elite level so young, I mean, that throw definitely, uh, definitely was big time. And it was clutch. I mean, it really came down to kind of that touchdown uh, gave SC the win. So big time throw for sure. All right, defensive side, start us off. Defensive side, I went to I went to the the same angle, kind of the symbolism, like what play kind of uh, is symbolic of, of the of the season at whole, and it's a goofy one. And I also I think it's uh, Christian Rector's targeting penalty against Cal, um, which is a goofy answer, but I think one, it's a senior leader, it's a captain guy, a guy who I mean had a tough year, battled battled back. When I mean, we talk about guys that uh, yeah were able to battle back all year, but I think that play kind of symbolizes the difference between. Uh, the 2018 year and the 2019 year. I mean, that play of guys buying in, of guys doing their job, making the big hit. And then once Chris Rector was ejected, kind of the fuel that that embarked on the whole team uh, and, and guys kind of stepping up, guys doing their job. And I think the biggest difference between this year and last year is those last three games, right? You go 0-3 to finish the year last year. You go 3-0 this year. And to me, it's guys buying in. It's senior leaders doing their job. It's seniors not wanting not wanting to go out like they did last year. And yes, I know the targeting penalty uh, was a penalty. And I guess technically he wasn't doing his job. But I think it was just a tone setter for that defense for the final two games of the year. But I kind of I kind of embrace Arizona State with that as well. And I guess as I'm saying that out loud, I didn't think of Christian Rector's pick too. So I guess that kind of those two plays stick out of just, okay, what was the biggest difference? It's those last three games, the ability to finish strong, to get to eight wins and have it be a much more positive vibe. The defense was turning the corner and you blow out a Cal team that got the best of you a year before. Uh, That defensive play kind of sticks out to me uh, for not necessarily the specific football X's and O's dynamic, but just the team and guys buying in. Very clever answer. I like that. I, I, I like your explanation. That makes a lot of sense. I cheated and had a tie for this one. I couldn't choose between them. One is Christian Rector's game-saving interception versus ASU, yep. where he tips the pass at the line, dives forward, catches the interception to prevent a calamitous uh, comeback uh, from the Sun Devils that would have, I, well, depending on, on your viewpoints, would probably not have Clay Helton as coach right now. So uh, calamitous for him, um, maybe – it was calamitous for the fan base if they're that upset about things. But a great play in the moment and really key to their, their strong finish. But I couldn't give it that one and not recognize also Isaiah Polo Mal's game-saving interception in the opener versus Fresno State. Ooh, yep. Where 
that that could have put the season on a on a really bad tone off the bat. And you could say it still was started off on a bad tone, three and three, but they lose to Fresno State on opener, which was very possible if that touchdown pass, which was on on the money, the throw was was going to hit the receiver in the end zone, and Polo Mal comes cutting across the end zone, perfect timing, and catches it. That was hugely important to me in the grand scheme of things. So I give a tie to those two plays. I like that. Love that answer. Yep. Okay, our last category is who do we think will make the biggest jump in 2020 on both sides of the ball? I'll start offense. This was hard. Offense was uh, was hard for me because I think biggest jump kind of means inheritedly guys that uh, we're not really talking about now necessarily. And a lot of these offensive guys we're talking about, but uh, I, I kind of point to Jalen McKenzie uh, and Liam Jimmins actually as well. Uh, I know Jimmins got some a lot of buzz at the end of camp then got some uh, got got some reps this year and i just think with Drew Richmond leaving those guys i think that i mean i mentioned the left side of the line i like what they're doing the right side of the line to me is where sc needs to take that big jump for this offense to really become an absolute juggernaut they need to be lethal up front and to me it's that right side it's guys like a Jalen McKenzie and like a Liam Jimmins I know Andrew Voorhees will be in the running as well but those two guys are guys that uh, I I think I mean genuinely the coaching staff is very excited about Uh, and Liam Jimmins obviously being a a defense alignment at heart he's still learning the the, the offensive line ways I think his ceiling is probably uh, as high as anyone on that front uh, offensive line so those two guys I would be very fascinated uh, to see this this offseason can they make the jump can they be very rather than just kind of getting by and being solid can that uh, right side become very good to make the whole offensive line elite that's what I'll be looking forward to and uh, and expecting to be honest yeah, that's a great point. If Austin Jackson leaves, that depth is really tested. As is, they're going to need McKenzie to slide out to right tackle. They're going to need Jimmins or Voorhees to battle at that right guard spot. And then if Jackson's out of the picture too, then you've got to you got to have another one of those guys step up. So that's a great answer. My offensive biggest jump is, is Marquis Step. I think we just got a tease of what he's going to do. Uh, I think hopefully the coaching staff had come to the realization that he was too valuable to be in a a tertiary or secondary role. I hope that he's lead back next year and gets to fully unleash healthy over a long stretch. And, and if he does, I think we're going to be talking a lot about him as one of the best backs in the Pac-12. That running back dynamic is going to is going to be fascinating to follow next year. But yeah, and then moving defensively, Isaiah Palomao is the guy that stuck out to me. I think. The secondary, there's a lot of guys that can make a, a, a next jump. Can an ITS become even better than where he's at now? Can Chris Steele kind of build on things? But I think Isaiah Palomao is interesting because he did start slow. They did bench him for that series or that quarter or that, that half, whatever that ended up being. But then you don't, Then he turns the corner and becomes a very good tackler. You never, ever see a guy who struggles tackling the first half just it ought, like it miraculously, miraculously kind of switching in the second half. That's, yeah. that's very abnormal. And so to me, I'd look for him to build off of that. I mean, we all know what Talanoa can do. I think Isaiah had big expectations coming into the year, but I think every everyone's kind of sitting here saying, all right, maybe we got ahead of ourselves a little bit there. But I think 2020, you talk about his bill, what he's doing in the, in coverage and whatnot. If he can pair that with what he's started in the run coverage game, to me, I would expect him to make a huge jump. And man, this I mean, we've talked about it. This secondary is uh, is super exciting come 2020. I like it. My answer is Drake Jackson. 
He, again, led the team with 11.5 tackles for loss, 5.5 sacks, but I think we can all agree that there were more plays for him to make in the backfield. Um, PFF has its own stats. These aren't like what you'll see on the USC site, but they keep their own defensive pressure stat. He tied with Tufeli for the team lead with 25, but he also ranked high up there on missed tackles, uh, meaning there were plays to make that he didn't finish. I think he'd be the first one to admit that. Any way you cut it, a phenomenal freshman season for for. Drake Jackson coming in, becoming an instant starter, having some huge plays in the backfield. I think we all agree his potential is sky high, and I think next year we see him take that next jump to to finishing more of those sack opportunities, to really having stats that are going to resonate nationally in those categories, and to being fulcrum for this defensive pass rush. I feel obligated to say that your runner-up MVP is also your guy that can make the biggest step in 2020. That shows how good Drake Jackson is. That shows how crazy, yeah, crazy high right. his trajectory yeah. is. But I mean, that's uh, that's pretty unique. But that's uh, that's what Drake Jackson is. I, I want to throw. I, I didn't get my runner up, runners up here. I did have some just real quick on the offense. Uh, Bruce McCoy and Kyle Ford. They were the two highest rated receivers coming in. Uh, Brew didn't play all year. Obviously, Kyle Ford played very limited late in the year. Whether Vaughn's is back or not, I think you're going to see both those guys have a role and and start to uh, fulfill their high uh, potential in recruiting ranking. And then on defense, Raylan Goforth is uh, a likely guy to have a bigger role next year with John Houston gone. We'll see how it breaks down with Kanai Malga, EA, uh, Raylan Goforth, but I think that he's going to be a guy that you start to notice next year. Okay, we are pretty much out of time, so I think we'll come back and do a, a maybe a, a separate bowl prep podcast, but I have to get Max's thoughts on one topic because it's been a talking point all week here. USC is not going to use its full allotment of bowl practices. They put up the schedule a few days ago. They're going to practice 11 times. The fans have been in uproar about this. To them, it symbolizes uh, their thoughts on this, on the lack of toughness in the program, the lack of of demand from the coaching staff. It just it reflects everything that they're frustrated about with the Clay Helton era. I, I have a totally different standpoint. I don't see it that way. I think with early signing day a week away, it's now a few days away, that that staff had to be on the road this past week recruiting, doing in-home visits, making a final push and surge to try and salvage this 72nd ranked recruiting class. I think if they had been practicing all week, three weeks ahead of a game with Iowa and not on the road recruiting, the fan base would have been uh, in uproar over that. How, how can you be blowing off early signing day? It's Iowa. you got three weeks to prepare. I think it's it's a no-win situation for the staff, <clears throat> but I actually agree with putting the priority on recruiting, and you still get 11 practices to prepare for one game. Max, just tell fans how important you thought bowl practices were and, and whether you see a difference in using 11 versus 15. Yeah, I think it's a no-brainer. I'm right with you. Um, I, I'm totally fine with 11. 11's a lot of practices. I mean, these guys have been practicing week in and week out. Um, so I, I kind of I, so I, I, the difference between 11 and 15 to me is – is, uh, is not that much versus the difference between another week of recruiting and in-home visits, that could be groundbreaking. And uh, if you're an SC fan complaining about practicing, then sure, that, that, that's fair, but then you don't get to also complain about the, the low recruiting classes because, I mean, you can't have both sides of it. They're, they're trying to go fix the recruiting class. They're, they're trying to go make plays. So I, I think they're making the smart decision. Uh, as the player, I mean, bowl practices – 
I mean, they're inherently not as intense. I don't care which what team you're a part of. It could be it could be Pitt, where I'm coming from, or it could be SC. I think you have a lot of older guys that. I mean, a guy like a John Houston or a guy like some of these senior guys. Yes, they have the NFL ahead of them, but they're not going to be grinding away to kind of improve all those like little things or whatever. Uh, I know SC fans would probably want them to happen, but that's just not human nature. That's not realistic. I think that what's kind of the haze in the barn for uh, in some regard, and then those young guys. Yes, the young guys could definitely uh, grow during the bowl season, but to me, they can still grow in 11 practices. It's not going to make a huge difference, 11 versus 15, versus the recruiting difference is, uh, is big for that week. So I'm right with you. It's a no-brainer decision to me. Uh, bowl practices are important for prep, but 11 is plenty. It's not like we're talking the difference between three practices and seven practices. That's big. 11 and 15, uh, to me, is uh, uh, pretty close to a wash. And by having less, it'll keep guys sharp, keep guys locked in. You don't want it to get monotonous and uh, dragged out. I think uh, I like the decision. Good stuff. As always, we are going to let Max go. I will do a, a final segment on recruiting with early signing day coming up, but great to have Max back in the podcast. And that was a fun discussion. Enjoyed it. That was sweet. Thanks Ryan. And uh, yeah, happy holidays and let's get a bowl win. Okay. Let's talk some recruiting. The early signing period starts Wednesday, December 18th, a few days away. As of Sunday morning, USC is in a four-way tie, a battle for 72nd nationally in the recruiting rankings with Memphis, Northern Illinois, and Utah. USC and Utah right now are tied for the bottom spot in the Pac-12 recruiting rankings, and you might say the Utes have some more momentum of late. USC has 10 commitments, only one four-star at this point. That's four-star offensive lineman Jonah Monheim from Moore Park. Again, this is going to be a small class. There's a limit to how high this can even potentially climb. They're targeting somewhere in the mid to upper teens, like 16 to 19 commitments based on available scholarships, based on who leaves for the NFL, if there is attrition through the transfer portal, et cetera. So it's kind of a sliding number. We don't know what it's going to be yet, but that's kind of the rough target they're working with, the 16 to 19. So we're talking six to nine more commitments. Well, this was kind of the final recruiting weekend before the early signing period. USC hosted five-star linebacker Justin Flo, four-star cornerback Dwight McLuthern from Houston, Texas, three-star defensive end Regan Terry from Florence, Arizona. He's an Arizona commit. And three-star outside linebacker Mulu Iosefa, Jordan Iosefa's younger brother from Hawaii. He's a Cal commit. Uh, that's kind of their their final group coming in. Obviously, last week they had some notable guys. Michael Drennan, a four-star running back from Dublin, Ohio, was among the visitors last week. So there's still some names in play. If you're a USC fan, what's your hope? Obviously, everyone's excited that Justin Flo came on campus to visit this week, did an official visit. You know, back in the fall, he put out his final four list. USC wasn't on it. All the buzz from the summer on was that USC was out of the picture. He really wanted to either go somewhere in the southeast. Uh, Clemson was the favorite among the schools down there and has remained a prominent name as recruitment. Or Oregon was always in play and seems even more in play right now. I've not heard any 
buzz that would lead me to believe that's changed as far as USC goes. I mean, the fact that USC got flow on an official visit on this final weekend is not insignificant. It's obviously notable that he's he's choosing to do this and, and give them a last look, and and it's their chance to sway him and and convince him and and try and change his mind late. But as of late this week, even early this weekend, I still was hearing that it probably wasn't going to happen for the Trojans. We'll see. I'd, I'd be uh, happy for the sake of the fan base to be surprised on that. So everyone wants that. What else is, is realistically in play? Four-star receiver Gary Bryant from Corona Centennial has been kind of foremost on USC's realistic wish list all fall. They had him on an official visit a little bit ago. It's down to USC and Arizona State for him. As of a couple weeks ago, I heard that USC was kind of like a 70-30-80-20 favorite there. That's just, again, talking to people who kind of are in the know with his camp and and reading the tea leaves. Nothing is uh, ever done until it's done, so you don't know there. That would be a good get. He's been their top receiver target all along. We'll see what happens. I mentioned... Michael Drennan, a four-star running back from Dublin, Ohio. USC got in late with him. Late this fall, made a strong push, got him on campus. He was really impressed by his visit. He said, it's definitely a place I could see myself. I think he's conflicted right now. I, I reached out to him a few days ago to see if he even had a timeline for a decision yet. He said he didn't. He's working through all that. USC obviously has no running back committed in this class, so they can really pitch to a guy like Mike Drennan that, hey, you are – a priority for us. Like you walk in, you're the only running back in this class. We only had one running back in the previous class. It's an important position to restock. Even though USC is loaded at that spot on the field in 2020, there's no more depth coming behind it. And those guys will eventually move on after next season, or maybe there's some shakeup in the transfer portal this offseason. You don't know. The numbers are low there, and we saw it play out this year when the top three guys got hurt, when Stephen Carr, Vivai Malapai, and Marquis Stepp were all hurt concurrently, and all you had was true freshman Keenan Christian and former walk-on Quincy Jaunty, and they really went away from the run. So that's an important spot to fill. You don't have to fill it in this early signing period, but they have a real lead here with Mike Drennan. They made a positive impact on him. Let's see what happens there. That's the name to keep in mind. Dwight McLeathern is a four-star cornerback from Houston visiting this weekend. He's a guy they've liked since the spring. Uh, McLeathern came out with his fast Houston 7-on-7 team in the spring. They all visited campus. USC offered him at that point. They were really hopeful to get him on an earlier official visit. McLeathern put out his short list early in the fall. USC wasn't on it, surprisingly. Things kind of died down. He claims that his interest never wavered. He just didn't know what was going to happen with this season, with the coaching staff. Now that there's some stability back there, he took the official visit this weekend. We'll see what happens. The other schools still in play for him are Virginia Tech, and he says Texas and LSU. I've heard that he's really high on LSU and would like to go there, but may not have a spot in that class. And that Virginia Tech and USC may be the more realistic options. So this visit was was really crucial for them there. Again, USC, like running back, has no DBs committed presently in this class. So he's important. As is four-star cornerback, local cornerback, Darion Green-Warren. Most of the fall, people have been projecting and predicting Green-Warren to USC, uh, considering the Trojans a heavy favorite, and they probably were for most of the fall. 
But I talked to Green Warren on Saturday, and he said he's he's really torn between two schools right now. That was his quote. It's USC. It's Michigan. He did his Michigan official visit last weekend. He did USC official visit last month. The Wolverines have made a really strong impression upon him. And there's a lot of buzz and momentum for them. I don't know what to predict right now. I can tell you this. I don't feel as confident about him to USC as I did before. I think the Wolverines have a really good shot here. And that would be a tough loss for USC because he's kind of that that guy that they thought, okay, well, we have no DBs committed. We don't need many, but we probably have Green Warren lined up. And let's just find someone else to pair with him. All along, they wanted two or three DBs in this class. They would be content with two. If they had Green Warren on board, they just needed one more to kind of satisfy those needs in this cycle. Because, again, they they brought in so many defensive backs last year. It's it's just not a pressing need. But you still want to fulfill a succession plan at that position. You want to have high-impact guys coming in. He was the guy that has been kind of penciled in all fall. And so if he ends up going to Michigan, that would be a tough loss for this class. Now he's going to make his announce. He's going to make his decision Monday and let the schools know. But he's not announcing until the All American Bowl in San Antonio on January fourth. So he's going to be a silent commit somewhere. He's going to sign Wednesday, but it's going to be kept quiet. I'm sure reports will trickle out. It, it, there will be buzz, but he's not going to officially announce it until January fourth. Those are kind of the main guys that I'm focused on. Uh, LV Bunkley Shelton is a four-star receiver and uh, also being looked at as a defensive back by USC. He was supposed to take an official visit earlier uh, in the last few weeks and, and ended up not happening. And I take that as a bad sign for where USC stands there or, or just where things stand mutually. I have not talked to LV in a couple of weeks, so I don't truly know what the, the pulse is. He has a ton of options, a ton of offers. I know that he was really high on USC early in this process, got a laid off where they initially wanted him as a defensive back. They finally came around and said, we'll take you as a receiver. But it's it's kind of up in the air where things stand there. So I'm not holding out a ton of hope there. It's kind of just, I just don't know what to make of his situation. All that is to say that USC has about six or nine spots to fill, and they're still in play for five to six four-star guys and I'm not counting Flo in that mix if you want to count Justin Flo six to seven four to five star guys so how high can this class actually climb well consider this let's just scroll up the rivals rankings to the top 40 and what would it take to get in the top 40 of the class this year well presently I'm going to give you a good comp here Michigan State Michigan State is 37th they have 19 commits. They have no four stars. They have 17 three stars, two two stars, and they're 37th. If USC can get up to that 19 range with a, a few four stars mixed in, they'll obviously probably search ahead of a team like that. Obviously, Michigan State can keep adding. They're not done. But that's kind of the range where I think the Trojans can get to in this class. NC State's 38th. They have 19 commits. They have one four star, kind of a similar balance USC has right now, just a few more numbers. So that 72nd recruiting ranking will go up. I don't know how high it can possibly go. I, I think the cap is probably is probably going to be mid to upper 30s. Because you look right now, Kansas, for instance, is 32nd. They have 25 commitments already, only one four-star. Okay, well, USC isn't going to get the 25. That's not possible. And 
I don't know how many four stars they're going to end up with. So I'm almost saying it's going to be even hard to even close that gap with a Kansas or a Maryland at, at, at 32nd. I think mid to upper 30s is the best case scenario. It could end up worse than that. Either way, it's not going to be a class that USC fans feel meets the standard of the program. Everyone gets that. I just There's nothing more to say on that. That's kind of where things are at. We get it. It is what it is. To me, what you hope for right now is that they are able to reel in three of these four-star guys are in play with, two to three, uh, continue to fill out the numbers, use the February signing period to try and track down some some late leads. And, and, and there will be some. Uh, so there will be some guys to – to uh, put their priority on and their full focus on that final stretch. But really, to me, it's, it's salvaging some respectability in the rankings in this class and going all in on 2021 and trying to get a head start there and really show that they can turn the corner in that class. They're not going to turn the corner in this class. It's about salvaging and getting as high in the rankings as possible and obviously to the step, it's not just about the rankings. It's about filling needs and, and positions, but they go hand in hand. So, yes, it's about how many needs can we check off in this cycle? Where do we end up in the recruiting rankings? Let's maximize that, but let's make sure that back in 2021, we're back to USC standards. And if they're not then, that's when the scrutiny will really be on the staff even more so. And and you would think by the leadership, I might Athletic Director Mike Bone. If they're, again, a middling recruiting class next year, two years in a row, that's when he has to say, okay, this staff is not able to turn the corner. That has to be a major factor in my evaluation and decision. USC can overcome one small class. They've had decently high-ranked classes leading up to this. Even last year, which finished 19th, that wasn't counting Brew McCoy and Chris Steele, who transferred back in in the summer. That class ended up fine. The classes before that were very highly ranked. They can survive a mediocre, middling-ranked recruiting class this year in a smaller scholarship uh, limitation class if they bounce back next year. So it's not a sky is falling on Wednesday. It's, it's just the reality of this is where we are. They can't afford to do this again next year. Anyways, we will have continuing coverage all week on Trojansports.com leading up to early signing day, through early signing day, lots of interviews, lots of stories, lots of coverage uh, on the day. Stay tuned with us, and if you missed it at the top of the show, which I'm not sure how you would have, because surely you listen to every minute of this, we have a great promo going where you can save 25% off an annual subscription and get $75 in an e-card the online discount code to spend on Nike gear and it can be used online or in the store 75 bucks of Nike gear and a discounted subscription to trojansports.com the promo code is Nike there is a big link on our homepage trojansports.com you'll see how to sign up it's real easy take advantage of that join the discussion on, on the message board on Trojan Talk Follow our coverage, and we'll see where this thing ends up this week. Maybe there will be a very positive surprise or two. You never know. That's why it's a fun season to uh, to follow, and, and we're certainly going to be fully locked in uh, throughout. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for reading our content on TrojanSports.com. Thanks for being a part of this community. 
We'd love to have you on the message board if you're not already. It's a good time to uh, be part of the discussion. Until next time.